Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. to another Britflix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today's guest is Walter Chow. Welcome to the show. Stuart, thank you so much for having me. We're going to do three films that impacted everything in your adult life, but before that, we're going to talk about your book, A Walter Hill Film, Tragedy and Masculinity in the Films of Walter Hill. This has been a few years in the making, I believe. Yeah, I spent seven years on this. You know, I was actually finished with an early draft pretty quickly after pitching the project to him, and... uh you know, wasn't happy with the way that I had structured it. wasn't happy with a lot of it and uh, began to rewrite. Um, once I got it in a kind of punching form, that we went through a couple of publishers, finally landed with uh, Matt Zoller-Seitz, another film critic, uh, who, who got it <laughs> and was very supportive of, uh, you know, my idiosyncrasies as a writer, you know, my, my, my occasional bounce with Divadim and uh, having this panic attack at the end of the day after seven years, I still wanted to rewrite it again. Um, but you know, it never feels finished as, as you, as you know, as a yeah. writer, it never feels finished. And if you're given the chance to meddle with it, you will meddle with it forever until, you know, somebody finally just says you just has to have to release it. So, um, there it is. Yeah. It took a, it took a quite a long time for it to, to get there, but you know, it, it feels good to have it out in the, out in the wild now. Now what, what, what blew me away sort of reading, I've, I've, I must have only read the first half so far, but certainly in the beginning of it, when you're describing what, what you're doing. And why are you doing it? And giving us some context as to who Walter Hill is before you start going into the films of the screenplays and films of his. Um, is this this notion that on in Europe, this is this has already been done? Kind of they they wax lyrical, they do you know retrospectives, but in his home country, he's kind of a bit of a pariah. He he wasn't part of the new Hollywood clique that you know the Scorsese, the Coppola, um, and it's 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 interesting that. That's part of the story because for me, obviously, it, 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 as a European, <laughs> he's he's been that action filmmaker from the states that we're like, wow, he's really got it, you know. Yeah, I mean, it, that seems to be the sad story of the United States. You know, we're we're uh, to make a broad generality about the United States, we're we're ferociously anti-intellectual culture. You know, especially when it comes to film or mass entertainment. You know, we were very fond of saying it's just a movie or just a whatever, um, and dismissing it as as popular entertainment. That's the way we treated our cinema until the French gave the movies back to us with the, the new wave and said, you know, all these movies that you dumped on us after the war, we think they're amazing. These Hitchcocks and these John Fords and all these programmers that you thought were worthless. And you, 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 you had us watch it in the, from the rubble, essentially, we're going to give it back to you as art. We're going to give you a theory about an author and we're going to do all of this stuff for you. And it took that for us, I think in the United States to finally begin to take some of this stuff seriously. But you know, Walter Hill still falls into that same kind of ghetto, I think for a lot of people, that those really filmmakers fell into for 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 the first generation of filmgoers in the United States. So this is just sort of negligible stuff. It's a guy. It's a guy movie. It's a it's it's something you pop in with some popcorn and a beer and you half watch it and you you you, you scream at the explosions and you know. But he's a lot more than that though. I mean, he, he's one of those guys that even before I knew or was you know hunting specific directors to to track down. I always knew I was watching a Walter Hill film even before I knew what his name was. Hmm. It was always different. You know, you, you you watch Southern Comfort or Extreme Prejudice or, you know, those movies, there's something different going on than maybe the 20 other movies you watched that week from the same video rental store that had guns and had ex, you know, uh, special forces guys teaming up for a bank robbery. You watch all of these movies 
And there's always going to be something different. Like Bob Aldrich was doing something different. Hmm. Um, you know, they, they, these guys are different. And it's obvious when you watch the movies, although it's difficult, I think, always to pinpoint it. It takes a special kind of skill. And lacking that, it takes persistence, seven <laughs> years of it, to try to pull out exactly what it is that is so uh, uh, unique and tantalizing about this work. What is it that makes each individual one different? And is there a broader storyline uh, that you could pull from a close examination of all of the guys work, you know, as you would with a great composer or, you know, a great playwright or, you know, what would you do with a body of work? Can you say there's an art? Can you say mm. that there's an evolution? Can you say, you know, and that, that was really the challenge that was presented to me after I watched a few of these movies from my youth that I, I had always loved, but never thought of deeply things like the warriors or streets of fire. And I thought, ah, it's so cool. It's so cool. Well, what makes it cool? And then that becomes the the inciting question, I guess, to to a project like this to say, what does make it cool? I don't know, because Streets of Fire is impossible to describe mm. and impossible to categorize. And why would a 13-year-old kid like that movie? I have no idea. I mean, I must admit, I, 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 and I, you kind of wrestle with that literally on the page. Um, and, yeah. and, I, and I find that interesting that... that there's the and it's funny if it plays right into what we're going to do with the with the three films impacts on your life kind of notion is that films as a memory and then you as a writer deciding years later to then look for something that maybe wasn't there when you first watched it and was there all the time or you find it because you're older, um, right, right. You know, I think that's the mark of any good great art mm. is that it cha- it changes uh, yeah. as you change because you know art is an extent object it's the same movie that you know mm. uh, it's not been re-edited for me it's just that whenever you go you know what, 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 what's that greek line it's very pretentious but you know you 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 never step in the same river twice it's this idea that you uh uh great art grows with you you know it it, it gives you wisdom and you approach it differently each time you uh re- re- return to it which seems i think to, to a lot of people Hopefully none of your listeners, but maybe a couple are saying, come on, you're talking about Walter Hill versus Catullus. You know, yeah, I am, because I think there's something um, genuinely unusual about watching a movie like Red Heat in 1988 and saying, okay, this is a Arnold Schwarzenegger programmer. It came out after Predator and whatever. It is what it is. It's a buddy movie. And then you watch it again as a, you know, ugly old man like myself. And you say, wait a minute, they love each other. And he's mourning the death of a beautiful partner for uh, back home. And he's coming to a strange place and he makes a connection with a guy that's maybe performatively masculine, you know, in a very masculine um, uh, uh, profession. And they make a connection and they exchange gifts and they even have a date together at a diner where they talk about, uh, you know, lost loves and whether they've ever been loved before. This is this is a, this is under the Tuscan sun with Arnold Schwarzenegger and Jim Belushi. <laughs> Something's happening here. And 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 he, is that something that I'm reading into it or is that something I'm reading out of the text? And that, that, that becomes a challenge, right? Because um, when you write criticism or write at all, you were always challenged with this idea of, are you just writing an autobiography or are you actually using the, the text as some sort of uh, guardrail mm. uh, before saying, you know, this, you know, paradise lost reminds me of my aunt's cat. So that's not really a valid read, but uh, is there a way that I can pull out something from, from, Red Heat, can you pull out something from Bullet to the Head and say, okay, so him casting an Asian-American lead, essentially, in Bullet to the Head is of a piece with him casting five Asian women speaking their own language and becoming the emotional center of Broken Trail, is of a piece with his um, uh, empathy with my, m- with minorities as exhibited in 48 Hours. You know, it's, is this of a piece with his work? Southern Comfort, another prime example with the actor Franklin Seals, uh, you know, the Rembrandt character from Warriors, is he progressive or are his movies progressive? And, you know, for me, that's, again, another kind of death of the author question. I'm sort of rambling. But, you know, the, the, you know, the thing about Walter Hill that's fascinating to me is that I think you can pull out that because of his training and his background, I would never call him a progressive thinker, a progressive person. He's just a, 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 an anthropologist. He's almost a documentarian. If he's showing the way that things are, then that becomes, in a way, in a way, very progressive. Hmm. If you're showing, you know, a mixed workplace. If you're showing black cops and crossroads who are hassling, you know, a black man and a and a, and a white kid in the South, that that has amazing contemporary resonance with what just happened with uh, uh, the, the, the 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 young man. It seems like every week I, I, you can make make this 
podcast evergreen that's murdered by a group perhaps of black cops and how does that work how is that racist or not well the system's broken hmm. and Helder was talking about this in 1987 in crossroads and so you know all of this stuff is in his movies and i don't think he's a progressive thinker i just think he's a honest uh documentarian of, of masculinity and all these things come through in his movies in a really brilliant and, and immediate way and that's yeah. part of the thing, thing that we connect with um as as americans we're like oh man he makes good old-fashioned american you know, iron and steel and bullets movies. We really appreciate that about him. And we tend not to think deeper. Yeah. I mean, I mean, when, when, when you say that, I'm thinking of like, something like driver where he makes the police Sarge, the, the detective, the antagonist, you know, he's, yes. it's, it's, and it's not even like the, the, that Ryan O'Neill is the, is an antihero. It's definitely the police. The policeman is a bad guy, which is a fairly subversive statement to be making in 1976. 677. Yeah, I mean he's uh you know and and as played by Bruce Dern in that movie, yeah. he's vile. He's yeah. actually gross, you know. I mean, he's just yeah. <laughs> and, and it is subversive to to say that uh you know and and the the driver we were talking a little bit off air about uh uh you know about his screenplays and everything, but the the driver those characters don't even have names. No, 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 yeah. It's the driver and the detective and the connection and the player yeah. uh, played by Isabella Johnny, you know, he's r- reduced all of these characters, these noir characters down into their component function, which is fascinating in a movie about m- machinery. When you, when you spend so much time with, with a subject as in the person, as well as the subjects of his films, um, you start with a perception of them at the beginning of the process. And then you, it obviously evolves and metamorphosizes into something else. So, I mean, I often ask this question to documentary filmmakers when they go into when they you know when they finish making their film. It's like, what to you was the biggest surprise about Walter Hill that you got from him that you that you couldn't have anticipated at the start of the process? Well, I knew going in that he had used some classical sources, you know, the Xenophon story for Warriors. You know, I knew that he was obviously smart you know obviously mm. well read but I, I i didn't know how much work i would have to do to catch up to him mm. um you know I, I there was a certain kind of uh i don't think it's arrogance necessarily because i don't think that much of myself but i didn't think that i would have to read you know borgia i didn't know, think i would have to read edgar Allan poe's essays mm. about the theories of composition um I, I didn't believe that i would have to reread the bible and the iliad which i did uh, it's not a matter of have to, but wanted to, you know, with yeah. his work. The more, but you know, we, we, once you get into a later work like the assignment from 2016, uh, there are all of these breadcrumbs that he's left throughout his his his, his films that I think are inviting or, or 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 asking for, pleading, not pleading necessarily until, well, maybe pleading by the end, hmm. uh, by the last couple of movies, asking for different analysis for uh, for him to be taken seriously. He's leaving it in there. So in the assignment, he's referencing Poe's. Uh, philosophy of composition, and he references it by name in a in a in the pilot episode of a show called uh, uh, Perversions of Science. It was a follow up to Tales from the Crypt on HBO. It only lasted, I think, one season, but he directed the pilot episode of that, starring uh, Lolita Davidovich and Keith Carradine. And in it, the f- professor in there is teaching John Keats. He's also teaching the philosophy of composition by Edgar Allan Poe. So this is a a, a piece that was obviously important to him and that was something that i had never read you know i was a huge fan of poe but not not necessarily it was nonfiction. so i read it and essentially what the the piece is is it's a, a self-dissection of the raven poe's dissection of the raven talking about what it is about the poem that works and the device of the raven saying never more and the, he says the reason it works is because there's nothing more melancholy than the death of a beautiful woman yes but there's nothing also more melancholy than a man asking the same question, knowing the answer that he's going to get, but having compulsively asking the same question over and over again. And that became really kind of a Rosetta Stone for me mm. uh, for the rest of his work to say, is Hill asking the same question over and over in his films, despite knowing what the answer is? And I think, I think he is. And, and you know, there's that passage that, that, that you read about the futility of vengeance and violence. The, 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 the only end for violent men is 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 a violent end. Yeah. <laughs> you know, th- th- there's no, like, it, 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 even the Ethan Edwards character in the searchers, you know, or Moses in, in the Bible, you can get within viewing distance of salvation, but you're not allowed 
You know, you've created the world. You've created Canaan. You've created Deadwood. You've created civilization. You've made it possible for people to exist in a civilization through all of the awful deeds that you've done. But once you have created that civilization, you are no longer welcome in that civilization. You can't mm. live in that civilization. So, you know, Wild Bill is in the wilderness and Moses dies and, and Ethan Edwards is cast out. And, you know, Tom in, 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 uh, in, in Streets of Fire can't stay. And, you know, all these people have to leave the societies that they have restored. That's the fate of violent men. And I think this is the question he's asking over and over again. And my, 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 my real surprise was to say, okay, this is a learned man who is not afraid of his scholarship. It, it appears in all of his work. And none of his work, I think you'll agree, is proselytizing. It's no, no, no. It's no, like, no. You know, I'm telling a story and I'm telling hmm. you a moral to that. He's not doing any of that. He's leaving the movies to tell the story. And, I don't think a lot of people were pulling that thread of anyone. And, and you know, I, I'm, I'm not patting myself on the back. I think everyone realizes that Walter Hill is great, you know, but I, I'm not sure that many people, especially in the United States, ever ask the question of why, why he's great beyond he's good at shooting action. He's good at, you know, all of these broad statements of good mm. pleasure and no really kind of in-depth analysis of like, what kind of archetype is he tapping into? What kind of urge or even a biological demiurge is he, uh, uh, re- reacting with or against in, in his movies that make make them pleasurable. And I'm not suggesting that any of it's really conscious. I'm just saying this is who the man is. I mean, mm. if you go to his study, his wall to, you know, floor to ceiling bookshelves, every wall covered with them. And, you know, quick glance over the titles, you know, as I was sort of perusing, there's Thomas Mann next to uh, Homer, next to uh, Virgil, next to Borgia, next to Puck. You know, it's like this... And I think he's read all of them, you know, and, and, and it shows up in Deadwood, you know, the pilot episode for Deadwood in which his wild bill is more eloquent than wild bill will ever be again throughout the rest of, you know, the, the several episodes that he's in, in that, that, that show, there's something about his movies that is secretly good for you. You know, it's like covering broccoli and cheese or whatever. There's uh, it's uh, it sounds uh, it's what you're saying sounds a lot like, I remember a sort of a, a quote from Kubrick talking about how he never wanted to be told what to read, write, or watch. It was always for him a discovery, which is about the self, like about the self almost. And it sounds like what you're describing there is because then, then you can, then whatever you, whatever that translates into in terms of what you create becomes true to you because you've not been shuffled into a lane, have you? You've never. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, there are very few, few artists that ever get away with telling you things. There are very few artists I think that ever do that. I mean, I think Milton did. I think, Melville did, but there are very few artists that could just say, this is what my, my this is what I'm going to talk about. Mm. Um, you're making a bad, bad uh, choice to do that. You know, I think a lot of movies that fail today, especially in the horror genre that are failing is that you get these people who are not necessarily smarter than you and not necessarily better white read than you or more experienced than you making a movie, telling you what, how it is. Like, I'm going to make a movie about this. Like, <laughs> yeah. Unless you're, unless you're Herman freaking Melville, you shouldn't do that. <laughs> and, you know, Hill is, is, is a guy who's uh, extraordinarily humble. You know, he's always like, I just always want my movies to speak for themselves. He didn't want it to be quoted extensively in the book. You know, the quotes that I do use, hmm. there are a couple of things in our conversations, but mostly it's interviews that he's given already, you know, yeah, yeah, sort yeah, of yeah. got around it that way. But, you know, he, he's like, he, he doesn't want to be a bore, he says. He doesn't want to be one of those guys at the end who's just examining his own work over and over again. He'd rather be making movies. He'd rather be making the work. Um, and, I think he does tell us tell a story though. If you are, you know, if you are quiet enough uh, to listen in the middle of undisputed, you know, amazing boxing movie or Last Man Standing, an amazing uh, comic book noir uh, remake of Yojimbo. If you're quiet enough to listen, you begin to hear the story of who this man is. You know, even his most compelling image, the chest bursting scene, which uh, was the one thing that he liked from Dan Dan, Dan O'Bannon's Alien script that he kept. Uh, you know, you see chest bursting and chest flayed open throughout his movies in Southern comfort. There's a deer very early on that's mm. flayed open the same way. There's, um, you know, even in a, 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 another 48 hours, which after seven years is still the only Walter Hill movie that I don't like um, where, <laughs> you know, there's a, 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 there's a motorcycle chase through a porn theater and the bad guys jump through the movie screen to a woman who's standing there, you know, bare, bare chested, but the motorcycle jumps through her the middle of the chest Mm. On the thing, you know, and, and you know, Hill had had, had uh, um, asthma as a kid. He stayed home and he uh, read comic books and dreamed of becoming a, a, a graphic artist. And 
um, all of these things appear. You know, all of these movies become a piece where this is a person who has, not unlike Hitchcock in a lot of ways, made a confessional and written an autobiography over the course of 24 movies or so. Um, he's in what, there. He's what, in what, did, what, if anything, did uh, did Walter push back on at all in terms of what, what you were thinking you were seeing or understanding about him or his work that, was there oh. any? Was there any? What, what? Where did? Where did it get most challenging in terms of when? All, all of it. Really? Of it. He he hated everything that I had to say. Well, I mean, he's he's super gracious. He's like maybe the warmest, uh, one of the warmest people I know. He's become yeah. a dear friend, and uh, but he 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 flat out would refuse to talk about themes. And but the the there the were there was one time that I said, uh, "Can you talk to me a little bit? Just a little bit, you know." about Poe. Tell, tell me about the, the the philosophy of composition because I'm sort of basing like my thesis kind of around this mm. piece. And he, he got very quiet and he got really thoughtful. And he said, you know what? You were the only person who's ever asked me about that. And that was that, that was it. That's all that he would participate. But that's enough for me. It's like these little, the little pieces that mm. he would give me along the way to say, well, you know, you've thought more deeply about this than most people ever have. And then we would move on to another conversation. He talked about boxing. We talked about something, but you know, there was these little threads in there, these little breadcrumbs that I had to use to sustain myself to know that I was on the right path because, you know, that, that was how he would encourage me to go forward. And, you know, mixed in with that are great appreciations and our conversations about Peckinpah, about Aldrich, who he adores about, you know, these filmmakers, Nicholas Ray, that he feels like we're really doing the work that he would Mm. like to, continued to do that gave me clues as well as whether I was getting close to it or, or, or falling away from it. Um, the only time I think that he was concerned about how I was approaching a film was with the long writers because he knew from the very beginning that I didn't like the long writers. Mm. Um, and, 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 you know, I, I, I do like it. I respect it, but it, you know, I think his later work, his own later work makes the, the long writers not as good, <laughs> you know, um, it, like Deadwood makes, previous westerns a little bit not as good i think all of it hmm. but you know long and then i said long writers you know did you ever think that you know that it was miscast <laughs> that you had the wrong keach brother for instance playing you know wyatt Earp? you, you, you know you, you have um stacy in there and then you, and and you've got james and it's like that's not that's not right to me that should be flipped i think stacy's the leader of men and and you know his, his his brother much less so, but 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 you know he 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 came back a- after the the uh, draft was finished, the final draft that I had, had given him a copy, which he hasn't read. He says um, he said to me, uh, "I want to explain something to you about long writers um, that it was intended as a musical piece, not 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 a musical, but a musical piece that hmm. that 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 it's like a, a son, like like a." a Beethoven or a sonata where it has a rise and a fall. And if you look at the actions of, of a piece of music, that's the action that I was trying to make the movie uh, go along. With. And I said, well, if you remember Walter, <laughs> um, James Keach had written this as a musical on for the stage and it became, you know, uh, not a musical, but there's that structure that's built into it. And he's like, I, I had to remember that. I'm glad that you're going to talk about that. And that <laughs> was it. Um, but uh, yeah, he's, he, I, I don't think he's disingenuous about his humility. You know, you'll, you'll meet hmm. a lot of people who are, who say that they're humble, but they're really not. Yeah. Uh, Hill is genuinely humble. And I think he pushed back on, on the idea of the book at all. You know, he's like, let's just be friends. Let's not like dirty that up with you writing a book about me. I'm not sure I deserve that. I was like, well, hopefully we can be both. But if this, uh, this means that we can't be friends, then so be it. But uh, I think that, uh, Really, you know, I've never expressed this to him, but really the reason I wanted to do this was so worried about it getting published or not was this idea that I want him to be celebrated within his lifetime hmm. for the good work, for the good work that he did. And he deserves that. You know, I yeah. think a lot of these, a lot of these authors get, will get something like this after they've died hmm. and, you know, years have passed and people are like, wait a minute, he died and look at these movies he did. I never, I had no idea. I wanted to give people an idea of it before he died. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, what one that I'll be, I'm going to be grateful for, judging by the way you write about it, is his first one. I've not seen Hickey and Buck. And, uh, and Buck oh so, man! So I'm, I'm very excited to, uh, to be getting my head around that one. That movie is so freaking good, man. So good. <laughs> now, what, what, what? One last thing about, about his work because I remember the first time that, and I guess this is about speaks as much about my own film fandom as anything else. Is I remember when I read Men, Women and Chainsaws, Carolyn Glover's film about about, mm-hmm. about gender in horror. 
And Southern Comfort is one of the cornerstones of what she refers to as Urbanoia. And it was like, mm-hmm. for me, and that made me go back to it because I'd not even, you know, it's a VHS I'd, I'd played as a kid. And here I am as an adult now reading this, reading this academic book, which is now saying, oh no, this is a great example of, you know, putting mm-hmm. it alongside Texas Chainsaw, but also more importantly, putting them both alongside Deliverance. And you're like, mm-hmm. wow, you've got Deliverance, that there's this film. And then you've got Texas Chainsaw and Southern Comfort being suddenly put together in the same group, which is not a normal conversation. And then you, you know, and that's kind of, and, and I think that it's like, it's like, I suppose it's a long time to wait, but it's like sneak. He, he, his work has just seeped into the consciousness in many senses. Yeah. You know, over the course of the seven years of working on the book, his movies went from largely unavailable on Blu-ray next generation to suddenly available. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You, know, you could get them on DVD or you could get the, you know, I have an Extreme Prejudice from Korea. I mm. have a, on Blu-ray, I have a Streets of Fire from Germany, Strassen and Flammen, mm. you know, uh, and, and, but only in the last several years have, um, you know, Western outlets, if you will, or English speaking outlets where his, his native speaking outlets, I guess I would call them, mm. uh, begun to release his movies. Now, now you're getting imprint from, from Australia with really, you know, box set coming out, I think that I did three commentaries for, and then uh, uh, they, they did the theatrical version of Warriors, uh, which is coming out. And th- there's all this stuff that's suddenly available that before I was really struggling to find, you know, especially Extreme Prejudice was really hard to see um, in, uh, in the United States of all places. Uh, okay. You know, Last Man Standing was was bundled with, uh, you know, another Bruce Last Boy Scout, I think. Um, and, and in the United States, it's just really hard to see some of these movies. Um, and, and, you know, I, th- I think there is, to your point, sort of a slow appreciation, a gradual awakening to uh, how important Walter Hill really is. I mean, how do you make a movie in 1989 with uh, Morgan Freeman and Forrest Whitaker and Mickey Rourke and Ellen Barkin and Lance Henriksen and Elizabeth and have everybody ignore it? I know. You know I, so it's, yeah. How, 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 what? What's going on? <laughs> you know, so. Yeah. Well, look, congratulations on the book, a Walter Hill film, Tragedy and Masculinity in the Films of Walter Hill. We are now going to do an exercise in other filmmakers' work, um, sort of looking at you in particular in three (laughs) films that impacted everything in your adult life. Um, For the listener that's not heard this before, it's a it has a little bit of jeopardy, so we're going to – I'll announce the film that's been pre-selected by Walter himself. And then we have a clock running for five minutes. And when we hear the alarm go off, which will sound something like this. Can you hear that at your end okay, Walter? Uh, I can. I can. It's, it's, it's terrifying. Good man. Good man. <laughs> and that will signal the end of five minutes. It's not the, it doesn't mean you have to shut up. It's just my passive-aggressive way of saying, time's <laughs> up, let's move on to the next film. It also means that we spend an equal amount of time, give or take, on uh, on each of the five selections rather than 40 minutes on one and then 60 seconds going. There was two other films as well. Um, so does that seem straightforward enough to you? I, I'm ready. Good man, good man. Right then. Well, going three, to, three down to one, starting with your, your number three selection, we have Catherine Bigelow's Near Dark from 1987. Yeah, you'll, you'll find that all three of my picks were from sort of the same summer essentially where I, I had a really rough year in high school and I actually tried to kill myself. And so oh my in word. the course of recovery, you know, being from a very Chinese background, I didn't uh, get any psychological aftercare. So I started renting the same movies over and over again from a local video store. This was one of the three of them. And, uh, and it was therapy for me for some reason. I never really unpacked it until much later, but near dark, Catherine Bigelow's second film after uh, uh, um, the, What's it called? The the unloved is that what it's called with hmm. with, with Willem Dafoe? But um, anyway, she 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 directed this movie. She wrote it with Eric Red, 
this was when she was uh, uh, married, I believe, to James Cameron. So the movie shares a lot of the same cast uh, with, as Aliens. There's Lance Henriksen, there's Bill Paxton, Jeanette Goldstein is in it. Uh, the main characters in it are played by Adrian Pazdar and Jenny Wright. Adrian Pazdar, better known today as the guy who really pissed off Natalie Maine and the Dixie Chicks, so that she wrote an entire <laughs> album called Gaslighter about him. Um, but anyway, uh, it's about a, a farm kid, essentially, who falls in love on a, one of those magical summer nights with a, a beautiful young woman eating an ice cream cone outside of the local uh, a, a, a grocery and uh, courts her. It turns out that she's a vampire and bites him. And before he can become a full vampire, he has to kill someone, and he's not that kind of kid. Uh, but it's about a, 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 a nomadic vampires led by Lance Henriksen and Jeanette Goldstein. Uh, the, the scary guy in it is played by Bill Paxton as a character called Severin. There's a centerpiece in it at a, at a, at a, at a remote honky-tonk where they kill everybody inside of it. They lock the door and turn up the jukebox and, and have their way. That uh, is extraordinarily beautiful, uh, the way that it's shot, the way it's set up, the way it's executed and finished. Um, it really spoke to me. It's a gothic horror film, you know, the leather biker jackets and all those things. That's, that's how I was dressing back in high school. And uh, the soundtrack is the first time I heard the cramps. Uh, I bought the John Parr album not long after, you know, with the song Naughty Naughty on it. All of the musical cues with the Tangerine Dream soundtrack especially spoke to me uh, mm. in that really summer of melancholy. And uh, I I went back to it sort of that Freudian repetition compulsion thing where kids want you to read the same story to them over and over again at night. Yeah. This was one of my bedtime stories and it's kind of soothed me hmm. through that summer and, and the whole next year. Um, it spoke to me about making a family, uh, uh, about finding a family outside of your blood family. You create your own family. You, uh, it's about those uh, summer nights where the sidewalk is warm underneath you when you sit out with the girl <laughs> that you like, but you know, you're afraid to hold hands. You're, you know, that's about innocence in a way that's lost and, the way that we try to uh, navigate through our, our, our world as it becomes increasingly frightening and, and um, absurd even. And it uses, you know, in, in 87, 88, these movies like the, like Cronenberg's the fly as well was a huge one for me that talk about disease and aging in such a beautiful poetic metaphorical way. Mm. Uh, near, near, near dark is also kind of about addiction and about uh, 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 disease, obviously will you still love me not only when I'm 64, but if I'm falling apart uh, because of some kind of wasting disease, it's the height of the AIDS it's, epidemic. It's, it's really interesting, isn't it? How the, 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 cause you got, I mean, Lost Boys is what, two years before? Uh, maybe the year after Lost Boys. I, oh. I don't remember what, what year was Lost Boys. Um, I, I was thinking uh, 85, but maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Yeah. You're probably, you're probably right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, but just the idea of the contemporaneous vampire, being the the signifier of society's outsider as well, it's like it's, mm-hmm. yeah, it's, yeah, and, yeah. And vampirism, I think Lost Boys is the same year as Near Dark. Actually, it's eighty seven. You might right? be right. They're, actually, they're yeah. both the same year. But but yeah, vampirism is the ultimate cool thing. You 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 never grow old. You're always beautiful. You you get to party all night. You get to sleep all day. You know, I think that, that was even the tagline for the Lost Boys, right? Like party all night, sleep mm. all day. It's cool to be a vampire. Mm. You know, yeah, but that, that that that's been the vampire mythos since. For forever, and they're usually immigrants. They're usually mysterious. They have the accent, right? They're <laughs> they're, they're they're homeowners. You know, it, it's like you know, even well, literally, literally, in Bram Stoker, he's, <laughs> he's sneaking into he's sneaking into England. <laughs> it's true, right? It's true. <laughs> uh, um, so, so there's something very sexy and romantic for you know a depressed sixteen year old watching that movie, saying, "Man, you know, there's there's a way that you can f- make your own family. There's a way that you can find kind of an eternity in this kind of thing." And um it, it's it, it's cool to be out late it's cool to be out with your friends it's okay to have a family that's not your family especially if your family's not necessarily supportive or understanding you want to find something there's our first five minutes sir how did that feel good good i i i, I can ramble for hours so luckily there's a there, there's a buzzer to stop me <laughs> well look sandwich in the middle at number two We've got Michael Lehman's Heathers from 1988. Yeah, this movie was a kind of a huge thing for me again, you know, defining my sexual object choice. Winona Ryder in a black dress is still my, uh, my, 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 my Mount Olympus, I guess, mm-hmm. uh, of, you know, uh, but th- the language of this movie was really um, 
seductive for me. It's written by Daniel Waters, who went on to write Batman Returns, I think the single best uh, Tim Burton film of all time. Uh, you know, he wrote uh, Hudson Hawk. He's done some really interesting stuff. But with Heather's, he rewrites language in the sort of in the pursuit of making a, a, a vernacular for his teen kids. He wanted to do slang that wasn't real. He wanted to invent slang so that it would never age, I think. You know, it would always be sort of timeless, almost alien. And in a, in a way, you know, in the years before I read Clockwork Orange or whatever, this was kind of an Anthony Burgess for me, where these teens that I recognize as, as elements of myself, again, the goth, you know, the hmm. depressed Christian Slater guy, the outsider coming to a new place, uh, and, and finding, you know, through his depression and psychopathy, uh, a, 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 a home for a while. Um, but the way that they talk, the way that, you know, the, the, uh, the, Fuck me gently with a chainsaw. Uh, they have a brain tumor for breakfast. The, the way that they talk to each other in this movie, to me, was um, a revelation. You know, as a kid who grew up loving to read and loving to listen to music and loving to listen to all these things, I, I had not been exposed at that point to a film that was so plastic in its language. And it, it's continued to be an inspiration for me whenever I feel like, oh, this is not done. I shouldn't say this. And, you know, I make up words in my in my writing too. I may make up Mondegreens that are, you know, these two different ideas pushed together, which is, you know, a kind of freedom in in, in the creative process. If, if I could be so bold as to call myself hmm. a creator sometimes. But, you know, there, there, it spoke to a freedom in like the John Hughes genre, if you will, hmm. of doing something completely different. And, you know, it has a really dark and down ending. It has a really dark theme, you know, it's about essentially two kids that are murdering their uh, popular classmates because they're bad people. And it allowed me to have sort of an outlet for the aggressions that I had for my bullies, for mm. the people in my school that I felt like were the Heathers were, or the jocks, the ones that were, you know, bonding together and seemed to have these perfect idyllic lives. And even more than that, it began to develop some empathy for me about those people's lives too, because you see these uh, characters like, you know, when, when the, 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 the jocks are killed, we go to their funeral and you see the families crying, you know, and they're not able to articulate themselves very well. And, you know, the Christian Slater character laughs, but then the, you know, the uh, Veronica character played by Winona Ryder has a real moment of empathy where she sees the younger sister crying. And, um, and for me, I felt like, all right, and it's good to humanize <laughs> your, your enemies. It's good to understand this in a different way. And so, you know, again, Heather's like with Near Dark, I would watch them in sequence, you know, I'd watch Near Dark and then I'd put in Heather's, that they both have a similar thrum of, the importance of creating your own family, the importance of, uh, you know, rooting out the people that aren't productive in your life, not in a Scientology way, but just in a mental health kind of way. Um, yeah. I mean, I mean, like, like think about what you're just saying there. It's almost like, it's like Brett Easton Ellis hijacked a John Hughes film in a way. Well, it, it's, 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 it's this. Yeah. I, I, it, it's also sort of the ping off of, of that idea is like, it gave me this idea about how you could make satires, how you could make um, a different animal from something that was very familiar. Because at mm. that time, right, we were all very familiar with Breakfast Club and Pretty in Pink and Sixteen Candles. And I always felt a little bit outside of that conversation, especially with the really disgusting sort of racism of Sixteen Candles. And mm. I felt outside of that, you know, when my friends were watching and really connecting to that. But then along comes Heather's that is making a hash out of John Hughes. That is saying, you know, all of this stuff is garbage and destructive and creating a you know the the ending of breakfast club is is appalling you know you, you're gonna settle for this guy what did he do you know all of this stuff is it's kind of appalling those messages but with heathers it's like this is a young woman who says i'm gonna blow up my boyfriend because he's a nut that's great that's all actually super extraordinarily pr progressive um although i wouldn't have called it at that time but you know it it, it did a lot to sort of build and, and form my perspective for the rest of my life to say this is what's possible. This is what you could create. And you don't have to eat what they're serving you. Hmm. Uh, you. You can season it however you'd like, or you can make your own thing whole cloth. And that's what Heather's feels like to me. It feels like a piece of. I mean, I mean, as a, as a, as a Brit watching John Hughes films and, and, and Heather's for that matter, it's, hmm. it's, Oh, it was always that for, 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 for watching it for where I am, you've got a big country, you have these sort of suburban sprawl of America where the high school, I'll finish my point where the high school is the centre of the community, whereas I grew up in a kind of post-industrial town in the north of England mm. where school was just somewhere you went and came back home. It never felt like a focal point at all, whereas I was being educated through film 
that in America, you know, you were going to all come out as a town to watch the American football match that was, you know, and I'm sure that was just an exaggeration out of film. Now I'm an adult looking at it. But as a kid, when I was watching them, I just thought, God, their school is really important and, and mine isn't. And and obviously yeah, then Heathers I'm- comes along and it's this dark version of, <laughs> of like, well, actually, I don't like this thing that is we've all got to be happy, happy because we're all part of this wonderful thing. I don't fit in. And suddenly you're like, oh, my God. Yeah, I don't think it's an exaggeration at all. I think school in the United States is a huge place that, you know, for development and growth. And um, it, it's it's all about the socialization that we get in high school out, out here. You know, that's that that's the center of our world for, hmm. for a little while. Quite such a horrible experience for so many of us. Really, I guess as well. You know, I mean, in England, you can leave at 16, whereas you leave at 18, don't you? In terms that's of right. school. So, I mean, that's right. you can still be a child and be out of school, out of the school system in England. Um, yeah, no, nope. Well, look, that was Weird great. Uh, now, this <laughs> this one, I must confess, this is this is the. I mean, and this is why I love doing this because there's always films that you don't, you've not seen, and then there's the films you've not seen and not heard of. And I must admit, Miracle Mile uh, <laughs> is one is one that passed me by completely. So, do you want to uh, do you want to tell us a bit about why that's so important to you? Yeah, you know, fascinatingly, Miracle Mile came out and, you know, it was released at the same Sundance Festival as Heather's was. They, mm. they were both pretty successful films. This was before Sex, Lies, and Videotape made Sundance kind of a, a, a marketplace more than a festival. But um, but Miracle Mile is directed by a guy named Steve DeJarnat, who had the script that was floating around for a long time. It was a really hot script. And it had originally had, you know, older protagonists. It was given to Gene Hackman to read. It was given to Paul Newman to read. They both passed on it. So he went back over the course of the years. I think uh, 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 Nicholas Cage was attached at one point. Mickey Rourke was attached at another wow. point. He went back and he did uh, some some rewrites and he kind of modeled it this way. And uh, Ultimately, it stars Anthony Edwards and Mayor Winningham. Um, and, and, you know, Anthony Edwards pre, uh, post-Goose, but, but pre-ER, of course. <laughs> so, you, you know, it's a, it's an end of the world scenario. This guy, he misses his alarm clock is, is, uh, doesn't go off and he misses a late night date with a girl he's just met. Um, and, and he goes to the diner where she works and it's really late at night and it's 4am and he picks up a phone, the payphone is ringing outside the diner. Um, and it's a call from a kid in a missile silo saying that, uh, dad, dad, it, it happened. We, we shot our load and the Russia will see it. And we're going to get it back in 70 minutes. And from then on in the movie, it's almost real time, the 70 minutes of him trying to um, convince others that this is real, that he's convinced that this is real, it's happening. And then going through the whole sort of process of him feeling like maybe it's not happening. Maybe it's not, maybe it's just a prank. And I just got pulled into this prank and I'm causing this panic among the people who were up at four in the morning, including in LA in the 1980s, you know, an all night workout chain, uh, fitness chain, uh, you know, with uh, all, all that's involved there. But um, it's really remarkable. And I think the ending of it is, is, is very true to the feeling of the rest of it. There was a, uh, the Twilight Zone reboot in the 1980s had the recently departed Melinda Dillon stars in, a, in an episode of it in which she finds a locket where she can stop and start time and the hmm. last time she stops time is when she could see a Russian missile, like, you know, 50 yards in the air about to hit her town. So she could never unfreeze time again. She's just sort of frozen up before the nuclear apocalypse. And Miracle Mile really captures the spirit of the 80s where in the United States in the, during the end of the Cold War, we're very afraid all the time that Russia was going to blow us up hmm. or that Reagan, Reagan would say something so stupid again that they would go on high alert. Reagan would accidentally blow us up. That the that that was the spirit of the time. We were really it's really a nuclear age. We were scared, hmm. really scared, and um, Miracle Mile captures that. But it also captures this ro- this hopeless romanticism of an older guy, uh, thirty or so, who hasn't found the girl of his dreams and thinks that he should have, and finally finds her. And that's the night that Russia launches launches a nuclear attack at us, and the desperation of that, but also the the romance of being part of a larger storyline was really important to me to be able to attach to and begin to dissect because I think as a suicidal teen, I believe that I was part of a romantic storyline that, you know, my death would be the emancipation of my loved ones who wouldn't have to deal with me anymore. And I would, you know, all of these things that you begin to build up and, hmm. you know, not knock at the cabin seems to be a riff on this and a dangerous one, I think a little bit, because there is a romance to the suicidal in a way to say like, I'm important enough that if I should die, then I will free people rather than, 
burdening them with a lifetime of grief and guilt mm. instead, which is what the reality is. But when I was suicidal, I believed that that was the right thing to do. I was the knight that was going to uh, stand up in front of the dragon of my depression or whatever it was that I represented, I thought, to the world and free them. And so Miracle Mile again um, has this operatic sense of being connected, the only person who knows the secret um, of a grand design. And it's only through their sacrifice, his sacrifice, of being the Cassandra, I guess, as his, his entrance, that he can he can free himself and he can free others from uh, uh, what's going to happen. And the reality of the film is he can't do any of it. Uh, you know, I won't spoil it whether, whether it's true or not. But at the end of it, it's like all of his efforts are for nothing, really. Mm. And his the desires and his designs are really a very small piece of a larger puzzle. And that was actually very soothing for me uh, uh, during that summer. And, you know, again, it's another piece that challenges what is acceptable uh, as an ending in American film or any film. It, it challenges all of these ideas about what art can and should be. Hmm. Um, and it does it in a way that's, you know, again, another Tangerine Dream soundtrack, one of the great ones. Uh, one of the few Tangerine Dream soundtracks that they composed to the movie rather than just have as drop needles. Oh, wow. Like okay. sell. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. There's the alarm. Very, but there's one question. Very I want to... alarm for, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's the, the, the uh, DEFCON 1. Um, Indeed. But was, I was going to the one thing I wanted to ask because you said you said that this was these these are these are VHSs you're you're renting from I guess your local what was your local video store what was because I mean 1989 is when Blockbuster comes along so we're not at 1989 yet so what where were no, you getting no, these it, videos from man I wish I could remember what it was called I think it's called Video Village it was in it was it was a block and a half away from my house in this little strip mall mm. and the uh, it was run by a family and it just had you know the usual stuff it had the curtained room with the naughty films and then had the horror section that I was always obsessively walk through so that I could look at the, you know, covers from when I was little. But, you know, I'd go in and when they closed a couple of years after this in the early nineties, after blockbuster, probably when they closed, they gave me um, the VHS copy uh, of miracle mile near dark and Heather's no way is a, a going away present. I still have them because I'd rented them so much. And I, you know, I think over that, the course of the next year after I got out of, uh, my, the mental hospital, you know, they put you in there for three days after trying to kill yourself for the year afterwards. I rented these things over a hundred times each. And I've watched each of these films, maybe two or 300 times, you know, they would just be on as I was doing other things as homework or whatever. Yeah. I would they'd be on. And um, yeah, that was their going away present when they, when, when they closed up, but they, they knew that it meant something <laughs> yeah. to me clearly. Yeah, it became my life preserver in a way in an obsessive, and yeah. acknowledgedly strange kind of way, but it was my, uh, they, they, they were the paving stones for the road on my, for my way back. And they were the reason I think, you know, I didn't try again. When I was thinking about this format and asking people to come and talk, I wasn't, I wasn't expecting literally <laughs> the impact on your life being you're here because of, well, of, you know, I thought of, about, I thought a lot about the question because you can get really precious with the answer. You know, I mean, the, I can say, well, the Coppola's conversation made me a film critic. And, you know, it's it's easy to go back and say, oh, you know, the first time I saw Battleship Potemkin was when I understood that, you know, you, you, you can't get precious about this. But I wanted to be very hmm. straightforward with you and say, look, this is a, if you're asking the question of what's meant the most to me, the films that kind of got me here, hmm. these are it. That's they literally, literally it. Literally got you Literally hit. it. Yeah. Well, look, I just I actually, mean- I actually wrote a book about Miracle Mile. It's a monograph. Okay. That you can, yeah, you can also get, uh, which is about that summer, uh, about the whole process of this going through, but also a sort of a shot by shot analysis of the film. Well, look, we'll, we'll, I'll put links in the show notes to that. And, 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 and do you want to shout out to what other, what other, what other work do you want to, do you want to shine a light on while, while I've got you? Oh, I'm, I'm terrible at this. Maybe just the Walter Hill book and the Miracle Mile book are good. Yeah. And then looking forward, then what what's 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 in what's in your what's in the near distance? What are you what what's what's your your next priority, as it were, that you can share with us? Well, you know, I started work on another book that's going to be kind of difficult to complete, I think, because I have to have access to a lot of archives. But uh, I'm excited about. I don't really feel like I can announce yet what it is, no, but cool. I did get I did get uh, David Fincher to write the introduction for it, so I'm feeling kind of excited about that. Um, you know, it, it, it <laughs> I have this weird legacy of getting really good people to help me with these things. Hmm. Cause you know, it's like buying the cheapest house in a really rich neighborhood where it's like, if I'm the one that's like the, the least important person as a part of a larger project, I feel much better about doing it. 
you know that because I, I don't know that I have any draw personally as as, as a as a creator and author. But um, if I can get other people to come in with me, like you know, with the with the Walter Hill book, we have um, Elroy and, and Edgar Wright wrote something for it, and Larry Gross and Ganzier, the great Egyptian artist, did the cover for me. Like these, all of these people are so much more accomplished and interesting than I am. That if you could give them a chance to help Walter Hill get get sort of the knowledge that he needs, then, then I feel really good about it. So. Anyway, yeah, I, I, it's working another book, and in the meantime, just doing the stuff that I always have been doing is writing film reviews and appreciations and things like that, and doing a little bit of teaching here and there. Excellent. Well, look, it just gives me to say thank you very much for giving your time on a Britflix podcast, Stuart. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.